Many cities around the world are growing so fast that there just isn't room for everyone. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Salvatore Setis looks at how today's megacities often overlook the needs of their newest residents, who land in crowded suburbs that frequently turn into slums. In the peripheries, which have been built without spaces for social life. On the other hand, Copenhagen has been experimenting with a commune in the middle of town that's become a popular tourist attraction. Get beyond Pusher Street and walk around and look at the buildings and start talking to the residents, because it's so much more than that. We'll also get mom-tested advice for traveling to Europe with your teenage kids. Teenagers have a much stronger sense of what they want to accomplish on the trip. There's things they want to see, things they want to do, and they're still teenagers. They still don't want you to tell them what to do. Travel tips that even a teenager can love, plus making cities livable for all their citizens. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. What you need to know to make an overseas trip with a teenager or preteen can be a lot different from the advice you give parents of a toddler. Coming up in the hour ahead, we'll look at what you should know to make it a trip for everyone to enjoy. And we'll look at Copenhagen's experiment with a communal, self-governed neighborhood called Kristania from a pair of documentary filmmakers who've studied the legendary neighborhood up close. Let's start the hour with a look at how cities around the world are bursting into megacities and the example Venice can offer about urban living. It's amazing to think that in the 19th century, about 3% of humanity lived in cities. And today, that number is 50%, and it's growing rapidly. We live in the age of the megalopolis. We're going to talk about that now with Dr. Salvatore Setis. Dr. Setis is an emeritus professor of the history of classical art and archaeology at the Scuola Normale Superiore in Pisa in Italy. He's an archaeologist and an art historian. He's the chairman of the Louvre Museum's Scientific Council. He's the author of several books on art history, and he's known as the conscience of Italy for his role in spotlighting the neglect of Italy's national cultural heritage. His book is If Venice Dies, and it's a look not only at Venice and the struggles of Venice in the 21st century, but at the increasing urbanization of civilization in general. Dr. Setis, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Can you talk about If Venice Dies? How much of it is about Venice, and how much of it is it about the changing urban landscape across the planet? Well, my intention in writing this book was to focus on Venice in order to make people uh, meditate about what's going on, on on a global scale, about what I would call the shape, the form of the city. So Venice as an example, as a counterexample, contrasting some of the most disturbing features of urbanization in our current world. And it is quite dramatic what's going on. In your book, you explain there are 15 megalopoli, I guess is the word, that have over 20 million people. Is the advent of these massive cities, 20 million people cities, people have to live somewhere. Is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Why does it concern you? Well, I'm concerned about the quality of life of those people because although this urbanization may look something that happens naturally, it is also prompted by economic forces. It is a concentration of workforce uh, which uh, is not necessarily uh, living in good conditions in order to create profit for a very low number of of people. So it's uh, the usual formula of 99% versus 1%. And the megalopolis is uh, a consequence of uh, a commodification of the world, the general commodification of the world that includes, to an increasing extent, human beings. This is just a very efficient thing for the elites 
to have a concentration of workforce where people who will be able to work cheaper and produce more by being right there at the center of production. Is that what you're saying? Produce more and also buy more, become consumers, because the workers are simultaneously uh, consumers. So there is a, a vicious or virtuous, if you so wish, circle between being workers and, and being consumers. And I think that there are two features which are combined normally. One is the megalopolis, the, the big urban center, as you mentioned. The other one is the verticalization of, of architecture. In my book, I use as, a, as an example Chongqing in China, which uh, had uh, 600,000 people in uh, the 1930s, and now it's 34 million people living in it. I have tried to contrast this with a different uh, forma urbis or shape of the city, a, a form of the city in which there is some sort of harmony of balance between the body of the citizen and the body of the city, where the citizen doesn't feel. Mm. Um, the one thing I'm saying is that it is good that we preserve diversity in urban form mm -hmm. and preserving diversity means among other things saving Venice and saving the other historical city also because there is a, an even more disturbing uh, feature of the urban form as it is taking shape in, in our time and that is the fact that while ancient cities historical cities had a boundary around the city in the case of Venice the lagoon in the case of other cities the walls around the city now the boundaries around the city, the boundaries of the city, are being gradually substituted by boundaries within the city, which is boundaries between the gentrified areas mm -hmm. uh, for the haves and the haves, the have-nots. You can see that in Paris very well. This you can see in Paris, this you can see also in Rome or in Milan, to mention Italian cities. Uh, the gated communities are increasingly uh, frequent all around the world, but the gated communities are for those who are wealthy or relatively wealthy, while the other people are, is condemned to live in favelas, like in Brazil, mm -hmm. or in, in bidonville, uh, like they say in French. I'm just thinking of Paris. I was just in Paris with a group, and I was explaining how they protect the center of Paris, where everything is the Monsart uh, scale, uh, you know, six or eight-story tall Monsart buildings, so you can see the domes, and you can see the spires, and you can see the Eiffel Tower. And then right when you get to the periphery, this big boulevard that circles the city, outside of that, it's just no holds barred, and it's like keeping the cattle at bay. Outside of that periphery, it's just a forest of skyscrapers, Within that, you've got the elegance of the classic people-friendly city that is, in a sense, a gated community because it's unaffordable for a lot of people and they end up outside of town in the rougher, uh, downtrodden neighborhoods. This is what's going on, and uh, your description is absolutely perfect, I think. But this uh, involves a, a separation within society, which is socially potentially very dangerous for the future, which is not precisely what uh, I would call democracy. You have it boiling over like we see with the poor and the immigrant communities in Paris, and, and maybe we'll be seeing more of that as we have more of this gated community approach to uh, cities and skyscrapers. This is what, uh, what's going on all, all over the world. Therefore, I think that reflecting, meditating over the urban form as it has been formed over centuries in a city like Venice can be useful for us to think 
this is why I say that Venice is a thinking machine. Mm-hmm. It's a machine where you you might be while you are you are walking within the city, you, you create without even noticing it a, a relationship with the architectures around mm. you, which are harmonious, and you can think: Is this a better life or a worse life of living than being in a place like, let's say, Chongqing? Dr. Salvatore Setis is helping us rethink the design of our cities right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's a prominent archaeologist, art historian, and cultural critic from Pisa, and his book is called If Venice Dies. And Dr. Setis, you talked about the, quote, language of skyscrapers. How is a skyscraper is a, a good thing, and, and how is it something that is uh, indicative of a problem the way we are designing our communities? Well, I was talking about the rhetoric of skyscrapers, not just generally, but in relation to Italy today, because uh, Italy is a country almost without skyscrapers, which uh, were actually invented uh, in the U.S. And uh, uh, But in, in recent times, it, it has become fashionable to think or to believe that uh, a contemporary city in Italy is not contemporary enough unless it has one or more skyscrapers, which is something that happened in Milan on the occasion of the International Expo. So so they built a number of skyscrapers, which I I understand are mostly empty. Mm. So they are good for developers, not necessarily for for people. Mm -hmm. So this really is a challenge for society because we are are compromising free enterprise for the collective uh, joy of having a people-friendly living space. I mean... In Rome, I understand there has been a limit where no building would go taller than St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, In Milano, there was the ethic that you would not build a a skyscraper taller than the Virgin Mary atop the Duomo or the cathedral. In London, you protect lines of sight so you can still see those beautiful Christopher Wren domes. And uh, while they have plenty of skyscrapers, they've tried to protect the beautiful vistas of the city. Is there a, a working compromise here, or do you find that developers ultimately will have the ultimate authority to blow all of this sensibility out of the water and just build bigger and bigger buildings. Well, this is what is actually happening. And an interesting case is what a great architect, Renzo Piano, did in Turin, where he accepted to build a, a skyscraper which was originally supposed to be higher than the Mole Antonelliana, which, according to city regulations, the, the highest possible building and the limit. Then there were many, many protests, and he decided, uh, and his his patrons decided to uh, reduce the height of that skyscraper by one foot, which is one foot less than the Mole Mm. Antonelliana. But this is not a sign of of (laughs) respect. This is is rather a sort of a sneer. It's gaming the system, yes. So I think developers are all already winning, mm. and the point is up to which point they will, and whether or not at some point there will be some reactions in uh, at least some cities around the world. Is there a city, a great city, that, that you think is doing a good job, and is the result of that something that the average person actually appreciates? Well, I think that the most important point you are making is the the distance, which we might consider natural, but it is actually unnatural between the elite and the rest of the society, because this means that the elite, if the elite develops a taste that the elite members are incapable of transferring, of communicating to other citizens, and I think that in this respect, education, mostly in schools, but also through museums and other cultural institutions, should be considered responsible for 
for making, not for diffusing, I, I don't have a doctrine to uh, impose to other people, but I, I think that thinking in critical terms, not being content with accepting whatever happens around us, but just reflecting about what's going on around us, reflecting and trying to promote diversity. So I think we are promoting diversity in every field. We are promoting diversity among cultures, diversity in religion, diversity in sexual orientation, diversity in whatever uh, other, other field. So why don't we think also about cities in terms not of homogenization, but in terms of diversity? And in this respect, the most diverse city I know of is Venice. Venice, but it's just a small town of 70,000 people or 50,000 people. Yes, it is small, but uh, it it is a a city that can give you a sense of relationship between uh, the body of the citizen and the body of uh, the architecture around him. Dr. Salvatore Settis, author of If Venice Dies, thank you so much for a very thought-provoking book and the work you're doing to help our ever more urban uh, civilization enjoy livable spaces. And thank you very much indeed for this uh, very nice conversation. Best wishes. Dr. Sedis talks about cities with building height restrictions and has tips for avoiding the crowds of Venice. That's in an extra to this week's show. You'll find it at ricksteves.com radio. Up next, we explore Copenhagen's urban experiment with communal living. And later... It's Tips for Travel with Tweens and Teens on Travel with Rick Steves. Just across the harbor from the Old Town, Denmark's capital has an unusual neighborhood that's a real eye-opener. Back in 1971, hundreds of counterculture squatters settled into an abandoned military barracks in Copenhagen's Kristania district. The government looked the other way to let the free city become a social experiment for idealists and hippies that continues to this day. You can wander through the ramshackle moats and shops and alternative housing where the slogan is, Only dead fish swim with the current. And now Kristania has become the second most popular attraction in all of Copenhagen. To tell the story of this commune, Robert Lawson and Richard Jackman have released their documentary film about the neighborhood called Kristania, 40 Years of Occupation. They join us now on Travel with Rick Steves to take your calls at 877-333-RICK. Welcome. Well, thank thank you. you. I gave a brief story, but tell us what happened back in 1971. Kind of paint the picture for us. 1971, there was a severe housing shortage in Copenhagen. And as a result, there were a lot of squatters in the neighborhood around what is now Cristania, the uh, military compound. And then a lot of squatters were being pushed out because they were doing slum clearance. And so as a result of that and some other factors... People started using the place for public space, place for their kids, and people started trickling in and moving in, and it became this, I mean, really before the um, government had a chance to respond, there were hundreds of people living so there like already. So overnight, you've got hundreds of people, and it was a ready-made sort of structure. It was a military yeah. barracks, and even so, to this day, you can see this regimented, strict kind of buildings that were from the military on the ramparts of the city that go back centuries. Right. It's a 17th century military base, and it was decommissioned in 68, I believe. So it sat empty for a couple of years. And I think even before then, people were breaking in, and they were having picnics. So it was probably a problem before, just because it was open land, and now you've got a different kind of problem where people are raising their families there. I mean, a different kind of challenge for the city. In the, the decades that have followed, Robert, how has the community generally related with the city? Because... 
in a way, it's just in your face. We're, we're going to take this land, we're not going to pay for it, and we're not going to pay taxes. Or how has the struggle been? It's an interesting situation because Christiania is right in the center of Copenhagen. It's not out on a farm. It's not out of the city. It's right in the center of the city. So the people that live in Copenhagen have a very direct relationship with the people in Christiania. And it's not always positive, but um, over the years... There's actually been a lot of support from the Danish people for Christiania. I think the idea of Christiania is very important to them, whether or not they have issues with some of the things that go on there. Uh, you mentioned not paying taxes. They they actually do pay taxes. Now, they began in the beginning by not paying utilities. I think they were hooking up a power line from one of the utility poles. Mm -hmm. They weren't paying for water or sewage. They didn't have water or sewage at the very beginning. But over the years, they've developed their infrastructure, and they've also made a, arrangements with the government, so they do pay taxes. They so do. there's a public relations awareness that uh, it would make sense if we go by some rules and still have our free spirit. Yes. Right, yeah. Because yes. when you go there as a tourist, and it is, you know, in Copenhagen, you see the mermaid, and right. you see the, the city hall, and you go out to Christiania. Yeah. And yeah. you walk through this community, and i got to say, most of the tourists that go there are interested in seeing what's called Pusher Street, where all the marijuana is sold right. or has been sold. Right. But it's so much more than that. And if you just go to Christianity to see the fact, oh, they smoke a lot of pot here, you're really missing it because you walk through a lush park that has all these geodesic dome kind of constructions and creative little stupas for people who are mm -hmm. beyond organized religion that still want to be close to God. And there are swap shops for people who don't believe in spending money but need to swap out some bigger shoes for some little shoes. There are a place where you go to get your plywood if you want to add an addition. I don't think they worry too much about building codes. Uh, it's a fascinating organism that, that actually works. And when you walk through it, you can be inspired by that. Yeah. yeah. It's not only a fascinating place on a social level, but in terms of the nature that's been allowed to grow there. It's often referred to as the green lung of the city. And it's also a place where uh, different species of birds come there that don't visit Because you can sit on the ramparts there and you've got, you know, it's so interesting because you can read history into a lot of city maps. And in mm -hmm. the old days, they would have zigzag ramparts and then a moat. Right. And today, you still got zigzag ramparts, and the moat is a lake, and it's a park. It's a green space with bike paths, and especially in a place like Scandinavia, you'd have a thriving wilderness yeah. and, and wildlife. I yeah. definitely encourage people to get beyond Pusher Street and walk around and look at the buildings and start talking to the residents because it's so much more than that. Now, when you go to Christiania, in fact, when you go to Copenhagen, you see a lot of T-shirts and banners, and it says, uh, if I remember correctly, Christiana Bivar or something? Bivar. Bivar Christiania, yeah. yeah. Does that mean Christiania it, lives? It means um, support Christiania. Okay, um, so, because yeah. there is a struggle. And my hunch is these hippies took it over in the 70s when nobody wanted that land. Now they're surrounded by a very trendy area. That whole yes. Christianshaven is one of the nicest places to live. All sorts of condos that weren't there before. Yeah. And developers are just salivating over this amazing exactly. land. And there's just a couple of hundred of hippies between them and a lot of easy money from a developer's point of view. Is that what's driving this constant existential threat to Christianity with their relationships with the government? Or is it a moralism about their non-material lifestyle and their easy attitude towards marijuana? I, you know, I think their easy attitude towards marijuana is used as a way of attacking them because I really do think it is about real estate. So because it's driven by developers' uh, appetite. I believe so. You know, there were many years when the government didn't pay any attention to Christiania. They didn't pay attention to Pusher mm -hmm. Street. There was many years where they just existed 
on their own. Um, it wasn't until the early 2000s that things really started to heat up and the crackdown on Pusher Street became very intense. Probably correlated with a rise in the potential value of that land. Sure. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Yes. When you think about Christiania, to me this is just a delightful flower garden, uh, flower children, idealism. You know, you can't embrace it completely uh, for most of us, but it just seems innocuous and innocent enough and, and kind of a stark contrast in Denmark with all of the regimentation mm-hmm. and the affluence. And it almost seems to me like a necessary dimension of a society that to me is almost like a jukebox where everything is in order in Denmark. And here you got that little place for the philosophical objectors to all that conformity. I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's how the Danes see it. It's sort of a uh, relief valve yeah, for, that's it. for the orderliness of their society. They like to think of themselves as um, iconoclasts, and yet they have this incredibly orderly little social democratic Isn't society. That a, that's kind of an irony because they do yeah. make themselves up like we are so free, but right. everybody is so conformist, and it makes the society work really well. And consequently, by most standards or lists, they're the most content and happy people around. Their society works really well, but you do need that little safety valve. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Christiania. The documentary movie is Christiania, 40 Years of Occupation, produced by Robert Lawson and Richard Jackman. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Diane's calling from Independence in Missouri. Hi, Diane. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick, and hi, movie makers. I'm going to be visiting Christiana in about three months, and the way I look at it is I'm taking a mini pilgrimage back to my youth. I grew up in the 60s and the 70s, and we all know that every, every place and every time has a certain vibrational quality. And I'd kind of like to revisit that. So since you've spent so much time there, maybe you could help me plan my couple of hours there so that I can use Christiana to help me get my mojo back. And the other part of that question is, do you think that the Danish concept of huga has any relevance in Christiana? So huga, or I thought it was hugli or yeah, something. Huga. Huga, huga, yeah. and that means um, cozy, uh, conviviality. It's yes. sort of the Bavarian equivalent of gemütlichkeit. Mm. So, yeah, does that fit in with Christiana? Oh, I think definitely. I think uh, Christiania is, has all kinds of huga, but it's not the same, maybe not the same type of huga that you would find um, elsewhere in Denmark. But it's about comfort. It's about um, companionship. It's about light. It's about warmth. And there's plenty of that in in Christiania. And we've experienced that firsthand. We've spent quite a bit of time there. And we've spent time in people's homes. We've, you know, enjoyed their hospitality. I've experienced Huga in Christiania, definitely. I've seen it with just people sitting around a candle, a single candle with a couple of beers, their kids running around barefoot at 10 Mm -hmm. o'clock at night. And it's just like, (laughs) life is good. (laughs) And I think there are guided tours of Christianity by locals that really are committed to the ethic and the lifestyle. And that's what I've taken a couple of times, and that really helps, because then you understand why people are there and how proud they are of this lifestyle and and how they really believe in it. I would say that, you know, people, if they shy away from tours, when you're in Christiania, definitely take a a guided tour, because it is with someone who lives there, someone who knows a lot about the history, knows a lot about the people there and you'll get a real insight into Christiania. Diane, thanks for your call. Thank you. Take care. And Neil's calling in from Bayside in Wisconsin. Neil, thanks for your call. 
Thank you. My question actually came along the lines of the, the previous one, which was how do you connect uh, rather than just kind of wandering through the streets and um, looking around and perhaps gawking at Pusher Street? Um, what is the, the best way? You had the good fortune of, uh, you know, having dinner in someone's home. Uh, but uh, what, are, what are some of the best ways to uh, experience Christiania without just making it another uh, checkoff point on a uh, bucket list of some sort. I would say just start talking to people you see out in public. You know, just start with an innocent question like directions or something and then ask them a question, any question you have about Christiania and you will probably get a very extended answer. Because <laughs> everybody's a, a philosopher, it seems like. Yes, right. and, and, and they everybody love speaks to English. Talk about, yeah, they, everyone speaks English and they love to talk about That's Christiania. True. Neil, what I would do is I would go to, what's the big um, entertainment food circus? Oh, Nemo Land. Nemo Land. Mm. And go there, and, and there's a lot of local Christianians eating there. Mm-hmm. And uh, go there in the evening. There's always something going on in the way of live music. And, you know, you have a few beers or if you smoke marijuana, you know, share a joint with somebody there. And the conversation surrounded by that music with the ramparts and the, the feeling of an old military barrack that's been inhabited by a bunch of flower children, it's quite an experience. Yeah. I also like the opera. It's an indoor, more intimate venue that has different kinds of bands, performances. They do a lot of blues stuff there. That's called the opera? Yeah, it's called oh. the opera. It's right off of Pusher Street. I would check that out. I really like the vibe there. Neil, have you been to Christiania? Yes. And as a matter of fact, I was there uh, just a few weeks ago, wandering through with uh, with my son. And it's now, it seems um, more connected to uh, to the city with some of the new bridges and things and a little easier to uh, to wander in and out of. I did see a, a schoolhouse and was kind of curious. It said Christiania Schoolhouse. Is the school run by the Copenhagen or is it run by Christiania? Do you know? Well, mm. they have a kindergarten. Uh, they don't have um, any other further education because, and uh, we uh, interviewed the kindergarten teacher in our film, and the way he put it is, you know, at a certain point, the children in Christiania must experience life outside. Mm-hmm. They don't want the children to be secluded in Christiania. So they have the kindergarten. They have several different after-school programs for the older kids. There are a couple buildings, after-school buildings, so maybe it was one of those you saw, or maybe the kindergarten, yeah. You know, I think what's interesting when we think about this community of idealists and uh, tree-huggers and geodesic gnomes and recreational marijuana and so on, these are very smart people. These are very idealistic and philosophical people, and the, the way the communities run, the more I learn about it, the more respect I have for it. I mean, they've got their security, they've got their standards, they've got their ideals, and they are not going to be conforming to social norms just because that's the social norm. I don't think they're contrarian for the sake of being contrarian, but they just really want to raise their kids without being materialistic conformists. And that's what it looked like. Yes. Neil, you, you walked around with your son, did you say? Yes. We were just uh, looking for it, and, and generally in Copenhagen, we're there to take photographs, but not uh, not so much in uh, Christiania, just because of some of the sensitivity to that issue. Yeah. Well, I think you just it's Pusher Street you can't take photos of, but everywhere else, I think you're welcome to take photographs. But you do have that issue of you feel a little bit like a voyeur. You're this, mm-hmm. you know, this American traveler with your North Face parka on, and there's these people mm-hmm. who are right. living very idealistic right. lives, and you've got your, your nice camera. Hey, Neil, thanks for your insight. Thank you. You know, it's interesting that you just brought up 
Christiania, there is not a lot of separation between the tourists and the people who live there. And Christiania is very much a tourist destination. It's second only to Tivoli is what we've heard. Hmm. So you have tourists just walking around. Um, we've heard that people have just walked into people's homes. Um, <laughs> so you do have to remember people live there. People reason. actually yeah. live there. They're living their lives. They're not there for your uh, this, amusement. This is something that as a tour guide I'm always aware of. Richard Jackman wrote his master's thesis on the grassroots architecture of Copenhagen's Christiania community. He teamed up with Robert Lawson to produce the documentary Christiania, 40 Years of Occupation. We have a link to their Bus Number 8 website with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. James in Virginia Beach joins us now on the line at 877-333-7425. Hello, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. When I was in Copenhagen in... 2015, I had two. I was there two days on the sort of Scandinavian tour, and that was one of the places I wanted to go. You know, I travel as a low-key person, so yeah, I went over the bridge. You can walk right in and walk right into Christiana. I looked at the rules. Didn't take any pictures on the main drag, of course, but there are beautiful artistic murals on many of the walls. So I did take pictures of three or four of those. Looked around at the houses. And I talked to a couple of the friendly, peaceful people, you know, because they know, uh, you know, many people uh, speak good English in Scandinavian countries and looked at some of their wares that were available. I don't remember if I bought anything, but it was really an interesting experience, you know, to walk around in a low-key way and, and see how people live. You know, being a college professor, you know, I wanted to see how people live, and, and I, it was just very enjoyable. And you found the people interested in just talking with you? They didn't feel like it was inappropriate for you to be curious about their lifestyle and their values? No, I'm not ostentatious. I, you know, I talk to people in a very, you know, friendly and open way. And yeah. You had a nice conversation with them. It was really, really nice. And, of course, I was also taken back by the just beautiful murals that different people have painted on the sides of buildings. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of political edge, but there's also just a lot of humor, and there's a lot of love and idealism when you look at the street art in a place like Christiania. One of my favorite chores when I'm updating my guidebook on on Scandinavia and Denmark is to uh, go visit Christiania and get my information up to date, and it really is quite easy. There's so many other things nearby. You can just walk there from other the major sites in Copenhagen, and then you step through the gate, and it says, Welcome to Christiania, and you do your visits, and then as you're leaving, I love it, it says, You're now entering the EU. Hey, James, thanks for your call. All right, thank you very much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Robert Lawson and Richard Jackman, and they've produced a documentary film called Christiania, 40 Years of Occupation. Robert and Richard, I was fascinated by the care that the community puts into who comes and who goes and the ideals of nobody really owns land. You can come in there and live there, but you don't really have the opportunity to own and develop and then sell your land. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And I think it's the foundation of Christiania is that nobody can own real estate there. If you take away that one aspect, the whole thing's going to fall apart because it really depends on that. As far as who moves in, Christiania's divided up into 15 areas, and the people in those areas decide who's going to move in when there's a vacant apartment or house or something like that. Because an important challenge they've had, I think, is there's a lot of just potheads that come there thinking, hey, this is a cool place to go, you right. know, let's smoke. And that's not what they're looking for. People who move in there, from what I've heard and what I've seen, is primarily it's people who contribute to Christiania. If you want to live there, a great way to do it is to volunteer. 
mm-hmm. or to work in one of the businesses there, get involved in the community. Money, capital, doesn't count for a lot there. Social mm-hmm. capital counts for everything. Social every. capital. And then when there's the space available and you apply to move in, yeah. you, you'd have an inside track. Yes, exactly. Well, let's hope we have Christiana around a long time to remind us that there's more to life than increasing at speed. Okay, thanks so much, you guys, and best wishes with your documentary work. Oh, right? thank, thank you. you. Learn how to have a great overseas vacation with your teenagers next on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Osa from Sweden. In Sverige så är vi alla individer, men vi lever tillsammans. In Sweden we are all individuals, but we live together. Tack så mycket. Tack så mycket. <laughs> Take an eight-year-old with you on an overseas trip, and they'll be excited about almost everything. But it's a different story when they become teenagers. And now, with so many people attached to their social media devices, it can be a real challenge to get your teenager to enjoy and appreciate what you've spent all that money on just to take them to see the sights in another country. Our next guests on Travel with Rick Steves know a few tricks to make family travel work with kids of all ages. Tina Heaty is a professional tour guide and a mother of two. She leads family tour groups around Europe from her base in Slovenia. Ashley Steele has written two books on travel with children and maintains a website and blog from her own family travels around the world. They join us now to take your calls at 877-333-7425 and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Ashley and Tina, thanks for being here. Thank you, Rick. So when you travel with little kids, grade schoolers, and with teenagers... How does it change? What's the, what's the difference from your experience, Ashley, as, as a mom? The teenagers have a much stronger sense of what they want to accomplish on the trip. There's things they want to see, things they want to do, and they're still teenagers. They still don't want you to tell them what to do. Different so, than the grade schoolers. Yeah, the grade schools are used to you telling them what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and Tina, as a tour guide, when you take the families around Europe, sometimes you've got grade schoolers and sometimes you've got teenagers. How does that differ? I think you just have to treat them equally as adults. They like to be treated as adults. Mm -hmm. They don't like to be treated as kids. And And they know if they're not being treated as adults. Yes, they know. They know. If you look down on them, they know. And they would mention it as well because they are very honest. They are in that sensitive time frame. I remember myself when I was that age. Nothing was cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And if your parents are trying to take you on a, quote, vacation and you have no input into the itinerary, you could easily make things miserable for everybody. And that would be a triumph. And sometimes parents also make a mistake because they don't ask, they don't talk the kids. Mm-hmm. What do you really want to see? Let's say I had an experience one year when a teenager girl really wanted to go up the Eiffel Tower and the parents didn't want to stay in line. You know, why would you take that away from your kid mm-hmm. if that's the only thing you want to mm-hmm. do on a 14-day tour? That's so wise. The biggest lessons I learned is you got to give the kids some ownership in the itinerary. And then yes. they'll stand in the line without, yes. without complaining. It's their idea. Mm-hmm. And they know that you respect them enough to yeah. make that a vacation for everybody. Ashley, what are some um, examples of uh, particularly rewarding experiences you've had with your teens in Europe? The most rewarding thing I remember is from when I myself was a teenager. And we were traveling in England. And I heard a song kept playing in different stores. And I was really wanted to learn more about this song. And my parents kept moving on. They had an agenda. And finally, my dad stopped And he said, well, why are you waiting in this store? And I said, I wanted to hear that song. And he stopped everything and took me to a record store. And I found the record and I bought this record in England that was super cool. And I brought it home, made the whole trip so much more fun. (laughs) Good move, Dad. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. So there's a, there's a good example of an adult remembering the kid does not want to necessarily go to the British Museum or hear yes. Shakespeare. They have an idea about a pop record or something like that. Yeah. It'll make a wonder of difference. When you think about making the itinerary, Tina, what are some examples? When you do tours for mm-hmm. families, how would you adjust the itinerary, which might have been only for adults, to be an itinerary that's smart to incorporate the interests of teenage travelers. Yeah, just add extra activities into it. You can visit a site. Let's say I love bringing the kids to see David in Academia in Florence, and I always bring paper along the way. And we do a drawing of David for the kids. Sometimes even parents join by, and then we make a little exhibition of those little drawings at the hotel. And then it makes parents proud, but it also makes the kids feel more important. And kids are so much better at drawing than the parents are. And, you know, I like to incorporate this kind of fun stuff, fun activities, hands-on experiences. There are so many hands-on experiences yeah. when you think of it. I, I was in Ireland, and we were visiting a farmer, and, and they don't put a gate in their fences. They just take down the rocks and put the rocks mm-hmm. back up. So we all helped them yes. physically take the rocks down and put the rocks up, and our kids <laughs> never forgot that experience. Yeah. Yeah. You can go into a lot of museums, let you have a hands-on experience mm-hmm. on that same Ireland trip, we went into the National Sports Museum, and we got to hit the hurling, Mm -hmm. pick up the hurling bat and hit the hurling ball, which really, they will never, ever forget. Ashley, what are some thoughts on kids' experiences? We had a great experience at the House of Music in Vienna, where Mm. kids got to actually conduct the Viennese Symphony, and they walked from room to room listening to different music. And, you know, I could never convince them to pay attention to all this music at home, but on the road, it's exciting. Everything's different. There's a great example. When you go to Vienna, you can go to Mozart's house, and that's just a house of a guy who died there. It's just no big deal. You can go to the House to Music, which has hands-on exhibits, Mm -hmm. and you can actually pick up the baton, which functions kind of like a computer mouse or something, and you conduct the Philharmonic, and when you conduct faster, they play faster. And if, you screw, and if you mess up, they put their violins down and they just laugh at you. So whether you're conducting the orchestra, whether you're hiring a little boat to chase a dolphin in, in Dingle, whether you're getting a mountain bike to go through the Alps on, a, on two wheels, uh, whether you're going to a medieval banquet and, and putting on a crown and eating with your fingers, there are so many ways that you can give kids memories. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tina Hiti and Ashley Steele about taking your teens to Europe. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Lisa's calling in from Hillsboro in Oregon. Lisa, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you for talking with me. Um, my husband receives an eight-week sabbatical. During his next sabbatical, my son will be 12. And on our bucket list for Europe are the countries Poland, Germany, England, the Alps, and Italy. And I was just wondering if we spent a week in each of those places, what are our must-sees with a 12-year-old? With a 12-year-old in Poland, Germany, England, the Alps, and Italy. Well, I don't know if we can cover all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Ashley, what would you uh, think off the top of your head for uh, giving a 12-year-old a memorable experience in some of those countries? The first thing I thought of was in Poland, there's the salt mines, and you go way down into these pink crystal. We went to a church carved underground out of pink salt. That's fantastic. And that's just outside of Krakow. Yes. you got to do that. First I mean, thing. Th- it is like anytime you could do an industrial site and there's lots of mines that you can go into and it impresses upon the, the kids how hard people's lives were a long time ago and how much joy and faith and passion they brought to it. And and uh, that's a great idea. Tina, any other thoughts? Yeah, in Germany, definitely the Met King Ludwig castles. Oh, good. Yeah, you the, know. these fairy tale castles just, in Bavaria, yes. Neuschwanstein. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then add up a luge ride 
just to kind oh, of spice it up a little right. bit. Yeah, Lisa, and do you know about the summer rotelbahn? That's the in the summer they get use out of their ski lifts by letting you go up the ski lift and then you sit on these go karts and you slalom down this concrete course. And the kids absolutely love it. Any tour guide will stop there, and the kids mm-hmm. will just go crazy on the luge. Yeah. In England, I would focus on the Thames Valley, I think. You can go to the Wind in the Willows Museum. There's the Museum of River and Rowing right upstairs. And then you can go punting, so you could rent a boat and yeah. try this sort of moving it with a stick. And you can ride a boat down and see Windsor Castle. All that's fairly active and engaging for kids. And Legoland is up there, too. Of course. It's just outside <laughs> yes. of Windsor, so <laughs> yeah. lots to see and do on the Thames. You know, the more you can study in advance and get the kids sort of engaged in it, I think the better. You know, the kids, if they do some studying on their own, make a deal. You know, you have a a stake in this itinerary. If you want to go beachcombing at low tide in London, you can find tobacco pipes that go back a couple of centuries because people had one-hit pipes back then and they just threw them into the river. If I was a little kid, I'd think, I want to go beachcombing in London. How many people would have thought of that? But, uh, you know, you can provide that leadership, I think, Lisa, and and let the kids be kind of co-tour guides. Well, I can tell you our tip is that whenever we travel, we watch videos with our son, and he picks from the videos where he actually wants to go. Yeah, (laughs) I think that's a great idea. All right, Lisa, thanks for your call, and and best wishes on your family trip. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Christine from Hamilton, Ontario emails, and she wrote, I don't want our family's first Italian tour to be a shopping holiday. My 14-year-old has stated that she can handle only so many churches and, quote, history stuff in Rome. (laughs) We have two days before we catch up with our travel group. Any ideas? So I guess they've got two free days in Rome, and they're with a 14-year-old who doesn't want so much history stuff. Hmm. So what would you uh, guides recommend for a a mom with a history-resistant teen in Rome? Just make her happy. Bring her to a shop. Let her buy a dress. Maybe take her to a hairdresser. It takes half an hour. And then she's all pretty. She can do the sights. You know, girls, they want to look a little different. They want to look nice. And shopping on the list for teenage girls is very high. Mm-hmm. And I think as a parent, you need to realize that we should facilitate that. And if you do it right away, she'll be happy and you can do the sites and you can evolve from there. Everything There's compromises. Yeah. It's always compromises on both sides. And just make the sites interesting. It doesn't need to be all the churches, but tell why and which churches you're choosing and why you feel they are important that you go and bring her there. But then in between, buy them gelato, go and toss some coins into the trevi. Gelato. Punctuate your museums with gelato. (laughs) (laughs) That's really important. And when you go to the churches, there's a lot of edgy, creative, goofy stuff in the churches that you can point out. Yeah, Um, yeah, Ashley. Art galleries from local artists so Mm -hmm. that you're seeing what's really happening in Rome now. Mm -hmm. What Mm -hmm. about also maybe a cooking class? I think that that could be fun. You learn a lot about Italy in a cooking class. There's a a lot of ways that Christine can uh, get her 14-year-old with a, a little more positive attitude. Dana's calling in from Thousand Oaks in California. Hi, Dana. Hi, how you doing, Rick? Great. Good, thank you. Um, my question is more kind of on the practical side, maybe. I'm separated, and I have a 12-year-old son, and he's traveled a lot. He's been to Russia and England with his mom. And I was wondering, like, let's say we're in Rome or something, would be more like for our places to stay, because I've traveled a lot on my own through Eurail, and I've used your books before on my own. But, like, if I have a kid, he's 12, 
Um, like for hotels and stuff, I would probably, you know, I need something with a separate, either a bedroom and he could sleep in the living room. Is there like a list of places that, that I could find that way? Well, I would, personally, I would just make it a twin room and you'd share it with a, a father and a son. If if you wanted a separate room, you can get rooms with uh, adjoining rooms and so on. Ashley, what are your thoughts? I'd on that? also consider renting apartments. Yes. Those are really easy mm. to do in a lot mm-hmm. of places in Europe. There's not one main website where you can go, but if you search it up, you'll find a lot of different apartment rental agencies and they might have a studio apartment with a couch in the front so and it, it can be cheaper over a few days and a better a location. Point. Airbnb yeah. would describe the situation and you would have a, where you'd have a full bedroom and then maybe a a fold-out bed yes, in the living yeah. room if your son wanted a little more privacy or something. Yeah, I was thinking for myself, privacy, actually. But yeah, that, that'd be no. more... So that would work. Is there places like... Do you know in Rome, is it uh, hard to get Airbnbs? Um, maybe in July, is that a tough time of year? No, no. it's wide no. open. Airbnb is a huge phenomenon. I'm sweeping Europe, and you'll have no trouble if, if you you know study the options and book it as, as well in advance as you can. And there's quite a few apartment rental agencies that predate Airbnb in mm-hmm. Europe, and so you might look at some of those as well. So there's so much to see and do in, in Rome, and, and I would remind you the colorful part of town is across the river, Trastevere, and there's beautiful neighborhoods at night, and at night everybody's out making the scene, and, and, and there's a lot of uh, kids your son's mm-hmm. age that are just, you know, showing off, and, uh, and the girls are strutting around, and the guys are strutting around, and it's, it's, a, very, it's a very sort of aggressive, uh, lots of hormones scene on the streets of, of Rome, and to be out there with your son, it'll be a, it'll be a lot of fun, and, and there are places to eat where the kids are hanging out, too, and I guess if I was traveling with a 12-year-old, I'd make sure to, to let him have most of the choice on the, on the fun places to eat. Oh, that sounds great. Okay, well, that, that's, that was my main question, was really just like our housing options. Yeah. Go okay. for it. All right, Dana, good luck. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. We're looking at how to make an overseas family trip with teenagers a success for everyone with family travel experts and well-traveled moms, Tina Heaty and Ashley Steele. Ashley is the mother of two well-traveled teenagers, and she's written 100 Tips for Traveling with Kids in Europe. Her website is familyontheloose.com, and it includes tips from her family travels to Europe, Southeast Asia, North, and Central America. Tina Hiti lives in the Lake Bled region of Slovenia, and she's the mother of two boys who will be teenagers before you know it. Tina and her husband are professional tour guides who specialize in leading small groups and families around Europe. Their website is pg-slovenia.com. You can listen to Ashley and Tina's earlier appearance with tips for taking younger children on a European vacation at the Travel with Rick Steves show archives. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Look for program number 490 from June of 2017. This has been so much fun talking about traveling with teens, and, and you can't talk about travel and teens without uh, dealing with the challenge of cell phones. Ashley, what's your wisdom on cell phones and teens on the road? I think cell phones can make for a lot of fun. You can give kids a lot of photo assignments with their cell phones. Also, they'll take a photo of something you need, like the bus route, and then they can zoom in and scan and be the navigator. So let the kids be the tech wizards. Absolutely. And then you might want to limit the use for social media to a certain time every night when they can have Wi-Fi wherever you're staying. And they're going to want to share their experience with their friends. That's going to make it more fun for them. So let's make that a positive thing, but within parameters. Yeah. Because they're going to want to share it on Facebook, but you don't want them to be at home all Mm -hmm. the time while they're in Europe. Tina, from your experience as a tour guide with families, mm-hmm. what's your wisdom on cell phones and social media? Yeah, I would say just give them tasks. Um, we usually do like a photo competition. 
you know, just stereotypes about certain places and countries and they should be in the picture. So it's like a competition for them. Mm -hmm. And I always say that they should also focus on the fact that, you know, it's great that they have cell phones, but just look outside, look where your parents have brought you, Mm -hmm. appreciate that. (laughs) And coming from a person that's not their parent, I think they take it for real and they Mm -hmm. appreciate it at the end. And it's normal and you can tell them. I always say with kids, being honest as well is very mm-hmm. important. If there is Wi-Fi, tell, you'll have Wi-Fi tonight. So that's why now you don't need to focus on that because mm. it won't be working. But do something else instead. Put your phone away and it's just wonderful. It's such an exciting time to be traveling with teens. It's more important than ever as mm-hmm. there's a lot of fear and misunderstanding about people outside of our border and there's a lot of uh, mm-hmm. pressure within our country to be afraid of the rest of the world. As we go to places like Europe, you've got all sorts of teen-appropriate experiences that mm-hmm. are cultural. There's street art tours, there's bike tours, there's very entertaining walks after dark, there's sources of information designed for teens. And I want to remind the parents out there that every experience your teens have when you take them abroad stays with them. Uh, 20 years later, well, 10 years later, I am just blown away by the impact our travels had long-term mm-hmm. on our children. One last comment. Just uh, this, is, this is such a, uh, an opportunity as parents. Tina and Ashley, I'd like you just to share something that made you very proud as a parent to have your kids or your tour members experience thanks to your parenting and tour guiding, Tina? I would say just, you know, the bonding between the family. I think that travel brings. Every time when I'm doing the family tour, I see how they come to the tour, how, you know, there's little things that happen along the way, little twitches, and they fight a little bit. But then at the end, when we do the circle of love and we talk about our wow moments, you see how parents just shine and that shine just radiates to the kids. The kids, I think, really start realizing what a gift the parents are giving to them. And for me, that's the best thing, what travel can give to you. Wow, that's so true. I I, yeah. I was dragged to Europe kicking and screaming when I was 14 mm-hmm. years old. I thought it was the stupidest idea ever. <laughs> and I hadn't even really thought about the bonding. And mm-hmm. yes, for the rest of my life, I had a different connection with my parents, thanks yes. to that rich experience that we shared. Mm. I think the same thing is true with Mm -hmm. siblings, that the siblings share these experiences that they don't share with their friends, and that brings a real closeness to the siblings. Mm -hmm. And I think some of what I've seen that I'm very proud of from our European travels is when our kids come home. And they have, for example, a a new student joins their class from Turkey or from Spain, and they gravitate right to this new student because they've, they've been that outsider. They understand what the student might be experiencing, and they want to welcome them and share. They want them to have as much fun in their town as they had in when they were traveling. And that's so changed true. their vision of the world. So true. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Tina Hiti, Ashley Steele, thanks so much for helping all the parents out there think of a great way to help their teens get Thank more you. comfortable with the rest of our world. Happy travels. Thanks. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for studio help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. Rick also has an app for your mobile phone with self-guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. And we'll see you next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. 
Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.